0: About a month ago, I was recording my sermon on, on this, and I forgot to turn the phone off. And I was in the church, and just as I was about to preach at 11, I realized it, and I turned it off and placed it on the thing, and it went... <laughs> I had just missed... By an inch, so I just turned it off. Just, just a minute, excuse me. It's the the lilies. Um, one time when I was in seminary, the 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 dean, the dean always taught the Paul class if they were New Testament professors, which he was, and he came in one day and he said. Christianity is not a religion based on a book, it is not a religion based on a particular set of moral and ethical principles, it is not a religion that is based on a a particular set of liturgical formularies or doctrinal principles, it is based on a person and in a person, Jesus Christ, and I mention this because today is the end of the Green Sundays, The conclusion of the church year, and we begin in the new year next year, next week, with the uh, first Sunday of Advent. So, this Sunday is called Christ the King. And it is not an ancient uh, designation or celebration in the history of Western Christianity. It was first begun uh, by Pope Pius XI in 1922 when who was in power in Italy? Mussolini, Mussolini. and he was at pains to uh, promulgate something that had something to do with where Christian people's allegiance ought to be not merely because of religious principles, but also because of the social views of the reign of Christ, the kingdom of God, being the location where God's uh, unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness was the default position by people who understood themselves to be the leaven in the lump as they sought to cooperate with the divine initiative begun in them, And so to be God's people in the world meant that we accepted in some way this kingship. In the Episcopal Church, uh, this is called Proper 29, and uh, it also can be celebrated as Christ the King. And in typical Anglican fashion, uh, while you may choose to do that or not, the collect that the priest reads at the beginning of the liturgy is, in fact, the collect for Christ the King. And it is a loose translation from the one you'd read in the Roman Missal if you went to mass in the Roman Catholic Church. So it's uh, virtually the same thing. The Lutherans also celebrate this Sunday as Christ the King. So I thought I'd say some things to you about uh, how we might understand this idea of kingship, particularly in a country and in a culture that is never warmed to the idea of kings, right? Or monarchy of any kind, and certainly nowadays uh, hierarchy is to be eschewed by many. Eschewed, not chewed. Yeah. I still remember that when I was a kid, there was a post magazine, Saturday Evening Post magazine cartoon of two women sitting in a living room with a man, and one of the one of the women turns to uh, her sister, I guess, or something, and says. Uh, No, Edna, he said he eschewed all forms of tobacco. He didn't say he chewed all forms of tobacco. (laughs) (laughs) Let me say, first of all, about what we're talking about when we say the, the reign of Christ. We're not talking about a kingdom where we have some sort of authoritarian process and involved where people say jump and how high, although I need to say this, this is what was on my mind this week when I wrote this, you know, a lot of Christian people from certain species of Christianity would wish to say, yes, we do believe in the kingship of Christ and we believe in the absolute authority of Christ and they have, they identify this with a kind of my country right or wrong patriotism. And I think that that's not what we mean when we say this is where our first loyalties ought to be. That somehow we say that there is the sure conviction that God is at work in each of our hearts, that as a community of faith, we understand that process, and that we have made a decision about what is authoritative in our lives. Now, we have always, by the way, in the Anglican Communion, understood this uh, as a number of provinces that are autonomous, and that we believe with regard to the disciplinary questions in the Christian faith and life, and with regard to certain matters of doctrinal principle, that we, we uh, solve these problems in the individual provinces. It's called subsidiarity. And there is a movement abroad in the Anglican Communion now to understand this idea of uh, Christ the King as a kind of unified lockstep understanding of how God through Christ is operating in the hearts of all Christian people. And uh, the American Episcopal Church uh, wishes to demur from that particular view of things. Uh, I'm going to have a, a uh, dessert with the rector probably sometime in December or the first part of January, where I'll talk to you about the Anglican Covenant. I decided I probably should do this. We don't talk a lot about those things, but uh, there, this is a, a, a lot of pressure is being brought to bear on all the provinces to sign on to the Anglican Covenant and so forth. I want to talk about uh, a different covenant today, which is given to us, or at least alluded to in the reading from uh, the Epistle to the Colossians, and uh, it's the baptismal covenant. I was thinking about all the readings, we had, you know, Jeremiah, well, I didn't really want to do that, you know. And the gospel I want to say something about, although it's kind of a downer, isn't it, and particularly if you read the reading from Colossians, and it's a sort of tri- I'll say in a moment again, that there is a hymn in, in Colossians, an early Christological or baptismal hymn that Paul reproduces, or the author of Colossians reproduces in this, in this letter. And uh, here then we read Jesus on the cross and we think, isn't this the wrong time of year for this? And I don't know and why, are we, why are we doing this now. So maybe we'll say something about what Luke was trying to do there and maybe what the compilers of the lectionary uh, were trying to do as we end the Christian year, uh, not to sort of bring us down. So in Colossians, we have a number of things going on which afford the opportunity to do a little bit of uh, teaching about it. First of all, um, the author, I, I, Paul, uh, believes that his experience of Jesus demonstrates to him that Jesus is the embodiment of all the aspects of the wisdom of God and its fullness. And as a Jew, He means that the Hellenistic Judaism that he was exposed to in the diaspora, that is to say, Judaism influenced by Hellenism, by Greek thinking, uh, had something uh, that they talked about called the divine wisdom. And that for him, Jesus embodies in a human being this divine wisdom. And by virtue of that, Jesus is the template that we can lay over our own spiritual life and development and and maturity. And also, he comes to understand, as he writes in this section all about uh, Christ and all of the sort of glorious things that he describes, uh, the effects of what happens at baptism. And it's a location for, for preachers often to describe uh, the importance of, of baptism. I didn't do it, but the, the um, preface that you can read uh, for the, at the Eucharist instead of for the Sunday is f- for baptism at this liturgy, if you want to. So they, they clearly have made the connection. The baptismal covenant is an important thing also about what I said a few minutes ago regarding the Anglican covenant. Because we believe that the baptismal covenant is sort of the centerpiece of our self-understanding as Christian people. This hasn't always been so in the way that we do it now. But it was very gratifying, since he's become somewhat controversial, uh, that at the General Convention uh, in 2009, when the Archbishop of Canterbury came to the General Convention briefly, he mentioned that in order to understand the Episcopal Church we need to understand the centrality of the baptismal covenant as the way in which we understand ourselves as Christian people and really he was making a commercial message for the baptismal covenant now a lot of you were baptized in different uh, faith traditions than the Episcopal Church and those of you who were baptized a long time ago Uh, in the Anglican or the Episcopal Church were baptized with a baptismal rite that had no Anglican covenant in it. Not like we have it now. And there are a lot of provinces in the Anglican communion that still don't have the baptismal covenant. And they think that we have made way too much out of the baptismal covenant that we have now written for our revised liturgy now 35, 30 years ago. And the fact of the matter is that what we have done is to take sources from the ancient church's practice and to once again reincorporate them into the baptismal liturgy. We haven't made up something new. We have have used old sources and brought this now into the liturgy to be more consistent with what we now know the early church's primitive practice was with regard to baptism. I belabor this because uh, there is a view that many people hold, even in the Anglican Communion now, that baptism is cosmic spot remover. (laughs) You know, rather than incorporation and initiation and welcome into the body of Christ and the beginning of a lifelong pilgrimage to cooperate with the initiative that has begun in you and to discover as you live in relationship what God's purpose is for you in the divine economy. And each one of us is part of an essential to God's plan. So the baptismal covenant is a way of saying how do we respond to this invitation as we live. Sort of the, the hard liners in the Anglican Communion have the old, an old uh, kind of uh, overweening understanding of the sovereignty of God. So the very idea of speaking about human beings cooperating with God in any way is utterly ridiculous. God is absolutely sovereign and God does what God does and our job is to get in line. Right? And we would say, well, you know, somehow we have to figure out how to cooperate with this and not operate in a continuous atmosphere of fear. And um, people's stories are different, but I've been a pastor for a while, and I've heard a lot of people tell me how injured they've been by that kind of viewpoint. It just scares the daylights out of people. And some people just finally say, you know what, life is too short and I have other fish to fry, you know, thereby closing yourself off uh, to an enormous opportunity to uh, grow into your full humanity. So the baptismal covenant is important and what Paul is recognizing in Colossians today is that in the person of Jesus Christ as a human being, uh, he has showed us what it means uh, to be a human being in its full potential, the highest and best of our humanity. So it affords, again, the opportunity for me to repeat to you that being a good Christian means being the best human being that you can be. And as you do that and people ask you how to get what you have, sometimes you'll be able to describe that to them without resorting to any specifically Christian vocabulary or for that matter any abstruse vocabulary from the therapeutic culture <laughs> which governs much of who we are these days, doesn't it? You know <clears throat> all you know, all of us have issues. We all have issues. So the question is, uh, we don't need to uh, go over that a whole lot, you know. Sometimes there's a place to talk about the issues, but not all the time. And there are people who can be transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love that are an absolute fever swamp of issues, (laughs) you know. So that means it's yes and no at the same time. And part of uh, responding to the divine initiative begun in you is the learning to live with that kind of ambiguity and that tension. And, as we talked about last week, anxiety, being in anxious times, and how to be able to, in the midst of all that, uh, commend your greatest place of safety and assurance so the baptismal covenant is really an important thing, and I mention this all the time. Every Ash Wednesday, I go into the church sometime during the day, and I sit down, and I open the Book of Common Prayer to the baptismal liturgy, and I read the baptismal covenant to myself. And I use that as a beginning of the season to ask me, David Brewer, how am I doing here on this thing? And where, where maybe do I need to think a little bit and reflect a little more deeply and so on you know and that means of course to change behavior how do I do that in big and small ways um, I'm going to say some things about New Year's resolutions in a few weeks and I'll just uh, give you a prelude by saying most of us promise way too much or resolve way too much you know it's just not necess- it's just not possible but maybe as clint fowler the rector of the parish i began my ministry and said we understand ourselves as episcopalians as inchers we're inching along and and so forth and so the cumulative effect of that will be when you look back you'll see that you have arrived now at a point of some ma- greater maturity and improvement you know it's a process Allowing the processes of God uh, to work uh, in you, you know. If you were to think otherwise, you'd you'd become sick or crazy with the inability to achieve that kind of perfection. So the reign of Christ is a place where all of us in the community of faith have the opportunity to work that out. And as Episcopalians, we might suggest... That while we have placed our allegiance here, or most of us have, that we are open to listening to other faith traditions that may have something to say to us about spiritual progress and its importance. So we always need to be, we need to be open to that. So finally, uh, in Luke's gospel, we have the story of Jesus on the cross, Luke's version of that. And... I think for Luke, uh, he was said three things from this scene on the cross. By the way, I would imagine uh, if this comes from an oral tradition that precedes the writing of the gospel, which I personally believe that it does, it also means that whoever the eyewitnesses were must have told somebody, and they must have been awfully close <laughs> to this while this was all being exchanged. So you can imagine that uh, perhaps there's some editorial work that has been done here. But it is a a, a gospel that has something to do with uh, Jesus being rejected, with Jesus uh, in some way uh, being uh, recognized for who he was, and then finally uh, proclaimed as Savior when they hear the story, and now they're all going to be in paradise. So in the ancient world, this would mean that in his person, he has now produced... Uh, the possibility for a a world where we understand uh, what it means to be truly human and where the relationship that <coughs> is established between ourselves and Jesus transcends physical death. And the early followers of Jesus believed that this was what they called eternal life. You know? Now, to some degree... Uh, You may feel that and have that relationship with the people that you've been close to in your life who've died and gone to God. So I'm I'm assuming that that may be where uh, the natural development in the church's uh, life as a community developed the idea of the communion of saints. So that we participate with the Savior in this eternal relationship in some way. It's a little shaky, some would say, on doctrinal grounds, I know. But, you know, it's like saying, when you die and go to God, will you get to see your dog? When I taught religion at St. Michael's School in Tucson, Arizona, that was the big question. (laughs) Father Brewer, in heaven, will I get to see my dog, Max, who's died? Well, you know what the old answer was? No! <laughs> uh, that's a shitty deal, now. No, you've got to, you're not going to see your dog because dog, but your dog doesn't have a soul. What? Right? Well, even if you use the old catechism that we used, you know, from the Holy Cross Fathers, we would say uh, the soul is the reason in the will. It's a pretty good definition, actually. It's not too bad still. But the fact is, if you believe your dog doesn't have a reason or a will, it's foolish to suggest such a thing. (laughs) And on PBS, they just had a show that demonstrated, in fact, that they do. (laughs) Right? By the best research that uh, they're bringing to bear on this kind of thing, you know? One guy on that show said, civilization as we know it would not have been created and developed without dogs and their relationship with human beings. So you'd think, well, here's some crackpot animal lover who's come up with this, and then they proceed in the program to demonstrate uh, this kind of kinship with all life. We haven't talked about that last week, right? So, you know, we have to begin to think about... uh, this idea of eternal life and what is accomplished in Jesus Christ and all of those things, perhaps with a bit broader perspective than we would have uh, before, and understood that the whole of creation, the whole of the cosmos, is in on this saving, healing process. So the reign of Christ that we're uh, celebrating and commemorating today has something to do about salvation understood that way. Remember that the word for salvation in Hebrew and its cognates, and the same in Greek, also means to heal. So when we speak about God's saving power, we mean God's power to make whole, and that as instruments of God's work in the world, as people who are living under the reign of Christ, we then become instruments of the making whole process in the world. That's the location for seeing God's saving power at work. So, coffee.